What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Salt for Why vlogcast. This is episode number 16, and as you may be able to tell by the ghost on the table and the, uh, the juice flowing, also the fact that I'm doing the intro, I'm joined this week by my man Nick Howard. Uh, Christian is fighting the good fight back on his t- home turf in Jersey, playing the Brigada WPT main event. Why don't we play these things, man? I thought he was playing the super high roller bowl. No, nah, they didn't get enough people. <laughs> he couldn't qualify. <laughs> wow. They almost this... had single digit entrance. My ghost just kicked in already, so nice. How crazy is this? So uh for those of you who aren't familiar with what we're talking about, um we're discussing the the London Super High Roller Bowl that's running right now on the back end of the poker hmm, was it the poker masters? It was one of those themed events that that poker go puts on um and they only got 12 entrants today on day one they're already down to seven it's a three-day event but here's the remarkable part two first timers entered the field today darren elias and uh adamo both obviously high stakes crushers but weird spot to take a shot i think not enough dead money for everybody to pounce on it either huh? doesn't seem that way um a lot of the regs that you know, tend to show up for these superpower rollerball events. Seem to be sitting this one out or waiting till. Oh, I, I learned something actually very cool at the Sulphur Y MTT Academy that I attended last week. When Hunt said that thing about the best cash game players, shorthanded cash game players in the world, can justify entering a tournament sometimes just by the edge they'll have heads up. Right. If it happens, yeah, yeah, yeah. what are your thoughts on that? Because I loved hearing that, the idea obviously. of like future skill edge being justifiable enough in order to take like maybe a long shot in these types of events. I guess that assumes that you're at least sound already at tournament. Well, yeah, structure. I mean, I, I would think that if uh, unless you're entering like a super soft field, which I doubt would be the case, because why would you be examining heads up scenarios? But like the example we used was Dan Coleman in the uh, million dollar one drop. One of the big reasons why he said he fired hard on it is because he felt like he was the best heads-up player in the world. Or maybe, sorry, I don't want to put words in his mouth. Not the world, but in that event. Um, and Hunt's point is that's incredibly relevant because all all of the ROI is up top. So if you have a massive edge heads-up, that's going to lead to a general higher ROI, assuming that you get heads-up a fair amount of the time. Dead in that field. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> you played six tournaments ever. That's true. With ridiculously, with a, sec- yeah, with a second place finish, two final tables actually, because the one all the way back in two thousand nine was recorded on a different hen and mob. Not change the subject, but how does it feel to know you're addicted to Ghost? I'm not addicted. I'm addicted to the way it makes me feel. How much do you have per day serving wise? Uh, about one and a half ish on average. The fuck is that? Like eight servings? No, no, no like one and a half servings. Now you're lying. No, there are days where I have more, but on average, it's like one and a half. Plenty of days where I have one, almost no days where I have none. Do you feel like you're still chasing that first fix? I don't know what that means. Do you, where were you the first time that you ever did ghost? <laughs> it's been a long progress, man. I started taking pre-workout when I was in college, so like 2003. I was on the NO Explode train, and then uh, they changed the formula, so it tasted like shit. So this is how I know it's not the caffeine. When they changed their formula, I just quit cold turkey. And then I was like a little groggy and my workouts weren't quite as good. So I was like, I got to get back on the caffeine train. So I switched to uh, C4 at the time. Great. 
Good decision. Blue raspberry, top notch. That makes me even more worried because that would indicate that it's something like the taurine or any of the other 12 toxic chemicals that are in it that you're addicted to. No, I think it's just the taste. I don't, I'm so bland. I don't eat sugar. I don't eat junk food. Tell them the name of this flavor so nobody buys it. <laughs> this, it tastes is, like, this is the black cherry flavor. It's my second favorite. Like medicine. I really appreciate what caffeine does for me. I've done me a lot too. of research because I was afraid. I thought that I was, uh, I was maybe down the dark and narrow path. You, you the would be. Drug. If, I think you. I think you have issues when you would definitely go into a withdrawal if you stopped. That's the point at which I get nervous about it. Yeah, but you know, when you're talking about a caffeine withdrawal, you're talking about a headache. Which don't get me wrong, that would inconvenience if, me. If you're so <laughs> sure about that, let's see you go drive for a week. I'm on a weird mix right now because I took some of this. I forget what it's called. It's got this weird name, but I think it's the equivalent of like kava root. Hmm. Okay. Which is like a anxiety okay. plant. Sure. I put it in my smoothie. I put way too much in before I came here. So now I'm mixing that with ghost, which is kind of like mixing opiates with cocaine almost. So where are you at right now in the spectrum? About to have a panic attack, but <laughs> got chill undertones to it underneath. <laughs> Some earthy undertones. I'll let you know if I need a break. So I guess first thing I want to talk about, um, we've been texting a bit back and forth the last few weeks, uh, and I've been kicking around some ideas, and you kind of pushed me over the edge where I think I'm going to do it. Um, so for a while now, I've been talking about doing this 100K challenge where I just want to like set up some, uh, some like boundaries and some guidelines and whatnot, and basically uh, just grind until I win 100K. doesn't seem all that meaningful. But um, I'm restricting it effectively to WSOP.com. Nice. So all online. Yeah. So online, which is not an environment I'm, I, I enjoy. Let's put it that way. I don't really care for it. Um, and then number two, it's, it's obviously a very small player pool. So I don't even know if you can take 100K liquidity out of this site. This is just a discipline challenge. You know, a big part of this is I don't like playing online. And I definitely don't like putting out goals that are not within your control. So like the idea of like winning 100K is so irrelevant, right? All I get to control is my volume, how well I play, et cetera, et cetera. But now I'm putting this tangible number to it. And I'm doing it on purpose because I think that this is like one of the first trigger points for people who self-sabotage. Whenever you like create these, these measurable metrics that as you get close, it becomes this kind of like dance between how bad do you want to achieve the goal versus how bad do you want to shoot yourself in the foot. Mm. Um, and like I started thinking a little bit further about that and like how this could be helpful to a lot of other people rather than just being a selfish endeavor. And what I kind of came up with was this idea of like a discipline challenge as a whole. And the way I was framing it or the way I was like trying to think about it as I was writing down like the list of, of things I would like to achieve over a certain period of time is like, what's your impossible? So like, what's one thing, maybe not one thing even necessarily, but like what's one thing or a collection of things that some part of you deep down inside wants to achieve, but has relegated it into the, into the compartment of impossible. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to come up with an exact thing. 
but I do know what feeling I would want to cultivate in any activity that I took to the to the fullest. And this goes back to something I heard Goggins say too. When I started listening to him, I really wanted to get to the bottom of what is the core perspective that he's operating from that allows him to push through these types of discipline challenges. And one thing that he said that resonated a ton with me was that at the end of the day, he wanted to be able to look people in the eye and know that he was the truth. Yeah. And in that sense, whatever thing that I'm doing, uh, I very, I very well know when I'm kidding myself about putting my full potential on the line. And I think that is largely what has led to bad patterns that I've entered. Sure. As a coach, especially it gets accentuated because you can only, you can only go on so long coaching and pretending you're the truth before you have to either face yourself in the mirror or someone calls you out for it and they're like, you're not even doing the shit that you're telling people to do. Right. How are we supposed to respect you for it? So for me, it's that feeling of like, I, I did a pike stretch yesterday. It was the best goddamn pike stretch I ever did in my life. And I, <laughs> I analyzed it after and I said, what made that stretch so good? And it was the point at which I pushed beyond like verifiably, I knew that I was at my max that I had ever done. And I made one last sort of lunge into that stretch and I almost blacked out. Yeah. And it was that moment where it's like, I'm willing to black out to go further. Yeah. And a lot of people would say that's like sadistic. And a lot of people say Goggins is sadistic. And you know, maybe Bro, he's got he a, a few <laughs> fucking screws loose. But I think largely what's happening there is he's made a decision from a from actually a deep place of self-love and that's what's paradoxical he's made a decision that he does not want to be jailed by the types of assumptions that hold so many people prisoner of their own minds and, right. and he's basically saying fuck it at any cost i'm breaking out of that and i have a lot of respect for for someone who's shifted into a paradigm that's that intense it's funny you kind of framed it that way because a lot of like the reason why I, I gave the perception of like what's your impossible is because of that whole concept that like we're just leaving too much on the table. And I think verifiably everybody can understand that like we all operate at less than 100%. But it's not even that we operate at less than 100%. It's like most often we operate at like less than 75%. And then we begin to think that our ceiling is somewhere in that range between like half-assed and mm. three-quarters effort, you know? So I wanted to like get a, a framework around things that it's just like, I've qualified these things at this point in my life as being rel relatively impossible. And I think a lot of people feel this way, like whether it's a career they're pursuing, uh, a passion, um, a physical feat, whatever the case may be. And you know, maybe this is just the framework of a midlife crisis. I don't fucking know, but I'm gonna steer into it. We're gonna find out. So one of the things that I had on my list is dunk a basketball. I've dunked a basketball before. It's not impossible, right? Mm. I know it's not impossible, but I was 10 years younger and one ACL surgery prior. So it's like, maybe it is impossible now. I don't know. I haven't even stepped on a basketball court since I hurt my knee. So it's like, what's going to get me to dive back into that? Because I don't believe at 37 that I'm just suddenly old and decrepit, but I also like don't think I can step on the court right now and touch the rim but I'm working out harder than I ever have. I'm probably a lot stronger than I was 10 years ago. So what's, what's, the, what's the problem? And it's all the milestones in between stepping on the court and dunking the basketball, right? There are a lot of individual steps that you need to take that are very attainable, but might force you to like get a little bit outside of your comfort zone. 
you got to condition, you have to, you have to train, you have to sport train specific to this, right? And do all these things. And then most importantly, you just got to get out there and do the reps. You got to go through the reps. Yeah. So it's like you have to go through this failure loop over and over and over again until you start getting closer and closer. The problem is that a lot of people won't do the reps unless they have a good plan that looks like it's going to map towards dunking. Right. But the problem with that is that a lot of people don't have the organizational skills to make a good plan. So it's an extremely important part of um, the self-assessment test that I want you to take. And I think you have an email waiting in your inbox, but it's uh, a part of the Harrison assessment test deals with the paradox quadrant. There's 12 of them. Organization is one of them. Largely what it's training someone to do is map something out without believing that they have to be locked into the rigidity of that. Right. Uh, for me, this was my biggest issue. Like operating I, in the macro instead of the micro. And being able to decide when it's time to shift into one or the other, or when it's time to make a large macro game plan shift. Right. Like my biggest problem, um, I think I mentioned this before, but we did this test for poker players. We made our own job suitability assessment for professional poker players using the Harrison assessment. It came with a bunch of templates and we decided that we were going to make one for the poker player because there wasn't one currently available for poker players. The closest thing I had was stockbrokers and it didn't map that well. So we went out, we got a bunch of winners, a bunch of break-even players, a bunch of losers to satisfy uh, the base metrics to be able to create this job suitability assessment for professional poker players. What we found was that organization was at the top of the list with one other trait uh, for being the most undesirable quality for a poker player to lack. So if you're bad at organization, data says you're not going to make a good poker player. Sure. And funny enough, the first time I took this test, my organization score was very poor. Mm. And I was bad at the other one too, which was overly self-critical, uh, which was the second top trait that right. poker players should avoid if they want to be successful. So for me, that was a funny experience because it basically confirmed why I felt like my entire journey to high stakes was like a white knuckling process to the top. I didn't have the tools, the two most important tools that I needed, I lacked. Yeah, and I think this is like what circles all the way back to discipline and the idea, you know, Chin and I have been talking about this a a little bit the last couple of vlogcasts. Um, I think people were of the impression that like you're either born with it or you're not and that it's not a conscious decision that's born out of routine mostly. What I was proposing to Chin was that I feel like everybody thinks about this in the very incorrect way. And it's, it's largely because we were children once where everyday life was built around self gratification, right? It was just about having fun and, and doing whatever spur of the moment thing was going to lead to that end. But also if you remember back to being a kid, you were bored a fucking lot. And the reason is because like nobody can keep up that level of, of intensity. So what I was proposing was that uh, and the example I gave was, you know, if you're in a long, long-term relationship, years, decades, half a century, whatever, how, how often do you think you are going to experience like new things with that person? How often do you think you're going to get to like step outside of the, the quote unquote day-to-day grind or routine that you've set with that other person? There's a theory on this or something. I forget the name of it, but it talks about how we'll normalize things like that. Right. Like that the mind is just meant right. to normalize stuff right. like there's that. A, there's a very specific reason for this. It's like uh, 
the 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 idiom I use as like you know variety is the spice of life, and it's that that's a phrase for a reason. If you only consume spice, then spice would lose all meaning to you, right? And it's the same thing in life. Like sprinkling in variety is what gives us this this sense of purpose and this feeling that like you know we are living a full life. But I can't say I actually got this handled until sometime in the last 12 months like really handled to the point where it makes sense in my mind now that if I go off the schedule that I have laid out for myself adjusting it over the years you know I generally know what I need to be doing if I'm not doing those things I know there's going to be problems Mm -hmm. like right around the road and I didn't used to really believe that right I used to be of the inclination of more of like the butterfly artistic extreme which is the guy who's just always picking up the next thing and like life will work itself out, law of attraction type um, inclination. Nothing wrong with that until your lack of preference in the other required trait for you to be balanced in this paradox rears its ugly head and says, you don't have any discipline. Right. And largely what you're doing when you're just fluttering around to the next thing that grabs your attention is you're avoiding the stuff that would actually build your grit. So my solution to that or uh, my epiphany, I guess, was that life is not standing still by any means. And when I think I have all this time to go off and just relax the schedule and go do the shallow surface level things, I start slipping. And then when I start slipping, I become self-critical. And then when I become self-critical, I put stress on myself that doesn't want to let me get back up and do the things I know that I should be doing. And it's this downward spiral. Yeah, I I think for me, like what solidified it was... uh was having that impossible in focus at all times as a kid, like just chasing the dream of playing professional baseball when I never had a shot, like physically never had a shot. It was absolutely an impossibility, but I didn't know. Nobody turned the lights on for me. Nobody shattered my dreams. And it was great because what I did understand is it was improbable. And because it was improbable, I felt like I had to do every single thing as as close to perfectly as I could or as close as optimal as I could. So it left me to create these discipline metrics that I absolutely had to rely on full force. So it's like, you want me to practice at 6 a.m.? I'll be there at 5.45. We're done at 8, I'll be there till 10. And I just like really steered heavy into the fact that like I'm always gonna be investing in myself and reinvesting and reinvesting and reinvesting. And I'm gonna trust that these paradigms that I've created for myself are gonna be diligent enough and uh, provide enough return that I can continue to invest my time. Basically, that was the way I framed it to Chin, was if money were never a factor, right? If I just granted you the fact that you would never go broke, you have net worth always, but there's still a desire to gain more, how would you invest your time? Like that was the question I kind of posed to him. Hmm. And the the reason I, I brought it up is because I think that, you know, particularly for our our audience who are, uh, pursuing poker for independence and things like that. Eventually, you reach that crux if you're successful. Yeah. Where, yeah, you you want to make a hell of a lot more money. Nobody's make, nobody's becoming a deck of millionaire through poker, but you're also pretty financially secure. So how are you investing that time? So my younger brother, who recently started playing poker uh, poker full time, he had a lot of success early. He put together something like a six-figure bankroll, you know. Shout like, out Patrick Howard. Just out there fucking killing Shout out it. to Patrick. So a lot of the discussions we had during our training period earlier this year in Denver where we basically got a house and put our heads down and just grinded data and uh, 
playing with the data was his side of things, which was like, I feel like if I only could make a hundred K a year, I'd be just good. Yeah. Like that's, that, terrifying that, that's sort of like the paradigm that he always came from. And mm-hmm. we didn't grow up rich as kids, but it was funny to me that our father at his peak was making her like low six figures a year. Mm-hmm. And I wondered how much of his narrative had been developed by just like us being comfortable. We lived a good life. And that's this, how right? much dad made or, yeah. or whatever. And who knows? But my paradigm was always, if I'm not pushing for more, I'm selling myself short. And and here's how I sort of resolve the paradox of feeling complacent at a, let's just pick a number. I, I think 100K is kind of low. Sure. So let's call it a quarter million. Okay. Because it's still very obtainable for like a 510 reg who's winning online to be making a quarter million a year. A lot of people can probably make that in this industry if they apply themselves. So let's call the quarter million point the point where you are in the upper echelon of Maslow's hierarchy, basically. Yep. Like you have cleared all base level existential stress. Only financially though. Financially. Right? Because you don't get to skip those self-actualization phases. You might just now have more time for them. Sure. Or you might not if you're that caught up in the in the rat race. Well, the, you, well, the thing is, is that no matter what, you will have more time. It's just a matter of do you want to invest your time into that like sphere of self-growth. My imbalance was always like, I want to make millions. Yeah. yeah. And I do think that's an imbalance to just have that as the raw goal. I think it's very healthy to recognize that that 250K point is a real landmark, whatever that number is. I know we're picking an arbitrary number, but I think it's relevant. I mean, I think that's the number. It's relevant to understand that the number that you would need to be financially stable is a lot lower than a lot of people probably aim for. Right. So knowing that, how does one continue to push him or herself beyond that threshold once we've established that that threshold sort of represents complacency? I think you have to get to a point where you see anything past that point as a game. And it's a game that you're using to leverage your personal growth on the level that I just spoke about before, where it's like, you first have to have that desire that you want to put everything on the table yeah. and that if you want to be able to look yourself in the eye and know that you're reaching your full potential. If there's not that first, I don't think this is going to work for people, but assuming that you have that desire in you to self-actualize, then anything past a quarter million becomes sort of a game or an experiment of how can I use these additional funds to set up adventures almost where I push myself to a new limit that I didn't think like you're impossible. Yeah. So, so one of my plans is I like just recently mapped this out that I took a few years off. I did the coaching thing. I came up with a ton of awesome data. I, I like where the methodology is at. I just recently started playing a lot over the last six months and I still realize that I have a great passion for playing. So my idea was I'll take everything over X we'll call it quarter million just for the sake of it. And that's going to be my fund where I'm going to shoot nosebleeds like as fearlessly as I possibly can. Yeah. I'll go over the border to Canada. I'll jump on poker stars and I'll play, you know, the highest stakes games in the world, or at least with the, the best players in the world at the limits that they'll play me at just to test myself against those guys. Because the benefit for it that I see is, you know, I could get whacked for a hundred grand. That's probably pretty likely. Mm-hmm. But the mindset implies of being able to film those matches and watch that footage and see where I crumbled under pressure and made mistakes 
that to me is so valuable to be able to reconstruct myself based on how I performed under maximum pressure that I would not be able to experience if I didn't sculpt that adventure and insert myself into it. That's kind of what gets me off lately. So I think that's like a really intelligent way of putting it. And I think it's really important to understand because at least from my vantage point, for somebody who concretely anchored themselves in a uh, tangible goal that wasn't fixated on money, but more so on like a dream or a passion um, in pursuing baseball, I never had that. So uh, there's a word for this and I forget it, but when we were working with a lot of um, different mindset coaches toward the beginning of last year, they were stressing that we didn't put a profit goal on our players' contracts. Generally speaking, you should. They were saying that we should try to cultivate some sort of internal motivation, mm-hmm. intrinsic motivation, I think it's called, Yeah, that sounds a lot more like what your childhood dream was of becoming a player, even right. though it was you know, almost impossible to believe. Yeah, I, I think the problem with me is that I've chased so many intangible dreams that I've, uh, I overlooked the tangible. And like I just become pretty complacent. Like I just haven't been playing much since the series. So do you think you would have less of a chance of completing the goal if you didn't put a number on it? Basically, like if you if you had to have me measure it in what my time is worth, and you said I need you to play 500 hours online, I would just be like, okay, cool. I'm not gonna do that. Like I could just invest my time better elsewhere. I'm running this business. Like I'm just spread too thin. I'm not gonna find 500 hours to allocate towards this thing. But now it has the implied hours necessary to obtain it, and it's just like. A video game at this point where it's like we don't even know that that's the end boss right like that may just be the end boss of a certain level and there's actually a much higher obtainable goal like maybe 250k is obtainable or half a million is obtainable or maybe this end boss doesn't even exist in this game that we're playing and the true final test would be somewhere around like 50k or 70k i don't know but the whole point is like because there's just not enough money up for right. grabs on yeah, WSOP. Like, yeah, maybe the pool's not big enough, or maybe I truly can't dedicate enough time to it. Like I don't know as I dig in. Um, but effectively, like if if I if I attach the number to it, there's also a sense of pride and embarrassment if I don't put forth the effort to at least come close. But effectively I just want to create like disciplined scavenger hunts hmm. where it's like um, over the next so you know, I'm looking between like now and next world series. So let's, let's call it 200 days over the next 200 days. Here's your list of items that you want to try to attain, uh, in order to have another check mark on the scavenger hunt. And it'll be things like, you know, just small obtainable goals in the short run, like sauna every day for a week, sauna every day for a month, sauna every day for three months, right? Do 10 minutes in the sauna for one day, do 10 minutes for seven days consecutively, do 25, you know what I mean? Just like incrementally pushing further and further and further to see like what 100% actually looks like and where we're tangibly falling off on the data points. Uh, and I want to do the same thing for poker. I just, I, I haven't really like gotten it all ironed out yet. So I've been thinking about this idea recently about the difference between training for mindset and training for the best results. Mm-hmm. So earlier in the year, um, I got like a full one year uh, fitness plan made up for me by one of these Instagram guru guys that I also submitted the wellness FX blood test to. Okay. He looks at the blood test and he, um, I'm sure he has like a stock plan that he makes your entire year up with, but 
it's pretty good stuff. And he gives you a nutrition plan based on your blood and all of that. And specifically, the fitness plan is very geared towards making sure you don't overtrain. Okay. And there's a lot of intelligence in that data-driven intelligence that says if you do these exercises too frequently, you could become overtrained and you're, you'd be almost better off taking days off. All that, I don't want to call it nonsense because I think it's definitely data-driven. What I'm interested in more so uh, at this stage, so like six to eight months into this plan, I can't tell you how many days I've gone to sleep doing the workout suggested on my calendar for that day and be like, I've got like way more in me. Today. Yeah. So there's that sure. aspect of it. And I started to started to think about how maybe my value anchor is just shifting here. Maybe my value anchor is not making sure that I never overtrain so that I can optimize my results. Maybe my value anchor is actually that I want to train for mindset more than anything. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, so that's the way that that guy can be right from his philosophy and I can be right from my philosophy. And I would say I'm starting to gravitate a little bit more towards the Goggins type of philosophy, which is just like, get the hell out there and go till you can't go anymore because the upgrades that you're going to experience in mindset to me, I think when my value anchor shifts towards really wanting to know how much I have in the tank yeah. and being able to see the benefits of that when I'm at the poker table because I don't tilt as much when I'm putting myself under more discomfort daily and learning how to manage it. It's made more sense to me why overtraining is sensible in a lot of ways. If you're doing it for mindset purposes, I think you can push the body beyond its limits and have good reasons for doing it. I'm not going to say it's not going to hurt the next day. I think it does, but I think it's about where your value anchor actually is. Like, you know the metric I would put my faith in? Am I fucking dead? Or each and every time I work out. Or something. See, as soon as I'm careful to introduce extremes like that, because as soon as you go to that extreme, people are just going to instantly stamp you as a sadistic motherfucker. Fair, but. And I know that you don't actually mean dead. Right. And I'm also not saying that uh, I need to have that feeling seven days a week, 365 days a year. What I'm saying is, I know what it was like to train for a sport versus how I train as an adult. And I'm at like a third of the fucking effort. For sure. Okay. But so now here's the really interesting thing shifting back to poker is that I have seen a lot of issues with players who try to double train in the early phases. Like, do, what do you mean qualify? Uh, what's it called in football when you have like doubles? Like two a days? Two a days. Right? Yeah. So without, without fail, like this, just a little glimpse into the, poker training world like this is 10% of applicants when they join our program hey guys just joined really excited gonna play 200 hours this month and study 100 yeah most this guy's ever played in a month is like 80 mm -hmm. hours so setting like ridiculous goals right off the bat is actually a self-sabotage mechanism in itself right because that person's setting a really far out goal to try to compensate for the fact that he deeply doesn't believe to even be capable of putting in moderate amount of volume right so he ends up burning himself out and there's all that twisted projection shit that goes on in, in a belief system like that but i'm asking you if you think doubles or two a days in poker is healthy when you have to consider that the tail end of the day is almost always going to offer diminished marginal oh, God returns. Oh, no. God, no. So I think the best thing people can do, I've never been a volume guy for what it's worth. Like, I don't think human beings are capable of the volume necessary to curve the variance in, in poker. So I've always been a quality over quantity guy. 
And with how much your mental state deteriorates through the lack of understanding of how variance works and how volatile this game truly is, we can say it a million times over. We can just constantly say, this game's volatile. This game's volatile. High variance. You're going to lose your flips a lot. You're going to get your aces cracked a lot. We can say it until we're blue in the face. It'll never actually resonate with anyone. The next time they lose aces, they want to flip the fucking table. The next time they lose a flip, it was a life-changing flip. So they qualified in a way where it's like, this wasn't just any flip. I understand I'm going to lose half of these. But this was a special flip. And it changed my life, right? So it's like... With the, with the rapid rate at which we deteriorate our mindset, so many of those hours need to be programmed into you to me- maintain your sanity. If you can't keep your sanity, you certainly can't keep your win rate. So what does that number look like for you per day max hours played on this challenge? I think my plan is going to be to cap it at five hours and also have stop wins and losses. Cool. And I know that seems insane when you're one tabling online. But I'm going to be playing MTTs too. So I'll still have my chance for the outlier scores. And I have to be diligent about not staying so long as player X, Y, or Z is still in the game and stuck. Because if I look back at the little bit of test data that I did for a few weeks before running up Reno and uh, uh, Florida or whatever, my biggest losses were days where I stayed when the live one was stuck and he got fucking even through me. Basically, what you're saying is he plays better and you play worse when he's that's, stuck. That's not the core layer I'm trying to draw. What I'm trying to draw is that I don't... Like, when somebody's giving tremendous action like that, I'm not going to shy away. And that's fine. I'm not, I'm not giving anything up. I'm still pressing plus edges. But the mental deterioration rate of going from a plus 10K winner to a negative 10K loser in one session where nothing bad happened. Literally, I analyzed, like, hand by hand. It was like, I don't see any... So you just think the volatility mistakes. is that much higher when that guy is in the game? Has to be. But, like, isn't, but isn't your win rate also a ton higher too? It, it's definitely higher, but the problem is that I think it's difficult to understand like how the other four around, around you are adjusting. And often what happens with a player like me specifically is it just turns into a one-on-one with people getting caught in the crossfire. Mm. And now all of a sudden... And you're wide usually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because like, you're playing versus the fish. Right, but it's like I'm never wider than him. So now all of a sudden, like money just goes in lighter street by street by street by street. And we're playing deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper until finally, like you just lose this 16K suck out in a 510 game. And yeah, you just try to shrug it off as best you can, but you're one tabling against a very select crew that may not present the same exact paradigm again. It's like, not that I want to lock up that win, but generally this is happening. It's like for me to be up 10K in a one table 510 deep game, I've probably been playing five or six hours. And yeah, I probably got it through this particular guy who's buried. But why give him the chance to mentally correct himself through positive variance while deteriorating my, my mental state, which is already declining? It's just a question of what's healthier for your mindset. I think objectively, if you were a robot, there is no sound argument for why you should leave that totally game. Totally agree. Especially since he's probably playing worse when he's stuck. Almost definitely playing yeah completely agree but uh i'm not a robot and i'm completely acknowledging steering into the environmental shift locking up that win is more healthy i think for your momentum heading into the next day yes okay being able to compound all of that together i think is like what allows you to just absolutely have the maximum win rate long run rather than just trying to maximize your win rate in this one particular isolated spot 
not understanding like what the potential negative fallout could be. You could also just lower your your volatility at that stage for the last hour of the session as yeah. an option. It's I really, know it's, it's, it's really not hard. easy for guys like you and me to switch to a pretty nitty strategy, but it could be the, the well, right solution. The thing isn't the switching to a nitty strategy. It's understanding why the nitty strategy is incentivized and where the EV is deriving from. So like what I'm trying to get at basically is like really easy to flip a switch and just play tighter pre, right? But then you take away spots for yourself to actually play against the fish. Okay, fine. Not that big of a deal. Willing to make that sacrifice to stay in the game longer and just win big ones off of them. But what becomes the challenge then is checking your talent at the door when you arrive to a post-flop spot and you have like a very clear situation to take a pot away from the guy. Because, from the fish. Yeah, because he's too wide, right? But you're running a zero equity bluff or you're in a situation where it's like this play would only work against this guy and I have to be pretty calibrated and correct to pull it off. So it's like not pulling those triggers then becomes a challenging thing. And now all of a sudden you find yourself like almost building out a bluff catching paradigm where it's like, okay, this guy's too wide. Therefore he bluffs too much. Therefore I'm just going to be much more passive and check Kali. And all of a sudden you're on a total Island where like, I don't play this strategy. I'm just really comfortable bluff catching versus fish. They over bluff. And if I have to yeah. put myself in that paradigm on that Island, I feel like that's just what's required. Like I don't, I'm trying to get into your mind here on, what you're actually afraid of in this dynamic and you might not label it as fear but it's like you have some sort of aversion to switching your strategy to exploit the fish for longer well what i'm not confident in is that um taking such an obvious counter won't then effectively be recountered and i've seen it happen a lot by the fish yeah because it's a it's a very simple uh re-exploit effectively like when you just see a good player who's check calling you too much, you just start betting a little less frequently. And now yeah. all of a sudden I'm conditioning him to play better. Are you though? Because now you're giving the fish a lot of credit for being self-aware. And if he was self-aware, he probably wouldn't be a fish in the first place. Now there are fish out there. Well, who I mean, are we're, like, we're qualifying fish pretty loosely. It's like he's a losing player. Okay. But he's not brain dead. Does he over bluff? In a general sense, yeah, but not maybe not from a frequency standpoint, from a poor selection of hand standpoint. Does that make sense? No. Like he probably under bluffs at showdown way, way, way too much. He definitely checks down way too many hands, but he'll run like trips with like a hand candidate that has no business doing it. And you'll just have like a very clear check call, check call, check call. I think this is where I just have to not disagree, but I would say I've yet to see a fish who doesn't over bluff rivers. A fish who's actually labeled a fish. Well, no. it also could be that... Uh, Online, at least. Yeah, and it also could be that it's a situation where I'm just the aggressor more often heading into the river. That but, makes sense. But, you yeah. know, we're talking about, like, a middle-aged businessman. I mean, I just hate to see you pick up when there's fish at the table. You know how I feel about that. I've always had that I think your mindset, mindset reason is good. Yeah. I think I could poke holes in the reason that you're saying you don't want to end up on an island having to play a strategy that you think makes him play better. But they correlate. If, if, I, if I walked into the game and I recognized that that was the primary strategy to employ when I'm perfectly rested, ready to just get in there and rip it, no problem. But making that shift five, six hours in, a thousand hands so in. So you don't believe that you're capable of making that shift without 
undergoing mindset problem. Yeah, it's not, it's not that I'm not capable. It's that there's a clear deterioration because it's less default to me than the aggressive strategy. In that sense, I would just say I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit. Maybe. The fish is clearly more unstable mentally than you are, even at your D game. Sure, for sure. But we're, we're talking about like uh, an already very volatile environment where this deterioration process, because we're, we're putting ourselves in like pretty hairline thin spots. What do you think he loses at per hundred? Three big blinds per hundred? That's 100? not that big of a fish. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, so he's like the mark, but he's not right. the fish. Right. He's just super volatile. Like, basically, variance makes him whole in a lot of ways. So he's like a bad wreck. Yeah. All right. But I think the whole game is filled with bad wrecks. So you're going to one table because there's not more than one table going on ever? Right. The game runs around, like, four of us who just, like, start it. So you need to make 100 buy-ins, pretty much. No, 50. What do you think your win rate is? Don't be humble. I think one tabling under strict metrics, I think I could pretty easily make 10 big blinds. Per All right, let's say it's 10, so that's one buy-in per 1,000. You need to make 100 buy-ins, so you need to play 100,000 hands, give or take, for this challenge, at, okay. assuming all hands are at 510. Right. How many hands can you play per hour, one table? I mean, it's six max, so probably somewhere in the neighborhood of like 75 to 100. So you need to play 10 hours to play 1,000 hands. So like 1,000 hours? I'm never doing it. If you played five hours a day, that'd be like a half a year goal. Yeah. But that's like one tabling. There's going to be some times where the fish wants to play you heads up. No, because, it's the opposite. Really? He, he refuses to table action. But there are other guys that like will happily do multiple tables. So but now, there's also a deterioration with that too. I'm so a live guy, man. I feel you, but you just said you're going to do a challenge. So now you got to tell me how you're going to work around this. I got to get uncomfortable. So you can't play 1,000 hours, which means you have to play high stakes. So you got to start multi-tabling. Or rip off tournaments. Or play tournaments on the side. No, I'll, I'll definitely be playing tournaments on the side. I'll probably be playing like twi- two, day, two days out of the week. I'll probably play tournaments. And I've done well so far this year. I think I have like 110K worth of buy-ins and like 80K in return. So like that's pretty doable. So if I have half that, get a 40K return, I can do this in four months. Make it to 100. Yeah. <laughs> you just got back from Banff. I love Banff. Yeah. Might move there one day. Can't move there because there's I'm nothing not in Alberta. Also, beautiful town though. I had this one day where I went on like a 12k hike, and I came out of the woods, and I literally felt like my mind had gone through like a car wash. Like nature was the car wash, just sucking stuff out of my mind that didn't need to be there, and putting stuff back in there that was very helpful. And I was like, damn, like I know it's crazy, but I really think nature has some sort of uh, I don't know if you would call it healing qualities or just it's very good for thinking in general. Yeah, it's funny you say that because uh, the question I was going to ask is like, where, what's your go-to stress reliever? And it sounds like it's just uh, finding some woods. It is, and I don't do it often enough. Same. And that's what I'm realizing. Um, so I tweaked my back this week, and I haven't been able to lift since Monday. And it's been annoying. So obviously... I can't just sit still. I've been like pushing boundaries, really trying to up my fasting, reduce my calories. And what I'm realizing is I'm slowly going insane, just having not done anything active in five Mm. days. And I can't take it. So 
I have my follow-up appointment on Monday um, just to make sure that it is what I think it is, which they think it's just like a swollen disc, which all I can do is give it time. And I've already like mentally committed that like if that's the case, I'm just heading for the woods. <laughs> like I'm just taking a tent. I'm taking my dogs. I'm going straight for the woods. And I think what it is is that like the the easiest reset button to push is to just strip away all the things that you take for granted as comfort and just like put yourself in a survival situation where it's just like, okay, if worst case scenario ever presented itself and I was left with a fire starter, some tinder and, and a tent, could I survive? Could I get past all this? That was what I was benefiting from so much when I was up there was like, this was straight up bear country. Yeah. And there no fucking around. Like we're talking grizzlies and shit. Like there's some black bears, but they got grizzlies up there, like real grizzlies. So what you're saying is you're afraid of a grizzly and not a black bear? Well, you'll handle a black bear? On my hike, I was tormented by the possibility that around the next turn, I could encounter a bear. And that was in my mind sort of the whole time. And I wrestled with this, with the question in my head of like, what the fuck would I really do Yeah. if a bear popped out? But I, I thought about it, like, I, I'm weird like that. I... I I hone in on these little things that are rare situations that would make for a really profound life experience. And I'm like, you know, what, 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 the, what if that actually happened? I don't think you're weird like that at all. I've been doing that my entire life. Like just whatever the worst case scenario is. I can't tell you how many times I've run through the scenario if somebody breaks into my house with a gun. But that's what was weird about it is it, it was, I could see how it was the worst case scenario, but there was also a chance that it would be the best thing that ever happened. Like I literally had images of me walking up to the bear and being like, and like putting the, putting whatever the fucking spiritual haze over him, and were, like convincing him that we're friends or some shit. Were you high? I was on acid at the okay. time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that doesn't change the fact. I mean, that, that changes I, a little bit. It doesn't change the fact that I. You probably were looking at your fucking shirt the whole time, just tripping balls. I wasn't even like, tripping that. Hard. I wasn't even tripping that hard. Part of me was terrified of the bear, and part of me wanted to make friends. And I think the part of me that wanted to make friends was the part of me that longs for overcoming that type of uh existential fear which i've always had not that's, to get that's that's a uh, next level deep not to get too deep that, it, that was not where i was going with this <laughs> the bear's always been my spirit animal too so there's that i can't i can't i can't <laughs> do this with you I, the big reason i brought this up is uh you travel a lot or at least more than the average person and the average bear sure <laughs> and uh I think that this is like, I guess like, what's your take on travel? Like, why? Why Why do you travel so much? What's What's the purpose? Partially, I think it goes back to the thing about mixing it up. Um, there's some sort of magic in a new place that if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're probably not traveling enough. So it's just sort of like it can kick you. Part of it kicks you into gear, Yeah, I would say. But the downside of it, or the other half of the other side of the coin, I guess, is that it can severely throw you off a schedule. Sure. Or make it hard for you to pick back up on schedule when you get back. But so, this part's new for you, right? The whole you're so regimented yeah, that so you're like, adverse if you, to if travel. You go on, if you go on like vacation with me these yeah. days, I'm like not fun. Okay. Like, so for, like to, for most people. Right, it's right, like right. We're in bed by 1030. <laughs> I might, I might have a few glasses of wine, sure. like I'm, but I'm not getting fucked up. And one of the things that I hear the most is like, "Oh, you got to live a little." 
Why don't you just live a little? Why are you so uptight? Why, why are you eating this way? Why are you so regimented in your workouts? Why don't sure. you travel more? Why don't you live a little, right? And uh, the, the thing I kind of wanted to rant on a little bit and what maybe you could shine a little light on because you've probably been both victim to it and then also recognize it the other way is this whole idea that like going to new places is anything more than running away from your current paradigm. Oh, thanks for the intro. <laughs> um, we've never talked about this actually. No, but I, I realized sometime in the last year or so, cause I only really stopped. Like I used to travel a ton more. I didn't even have a home for most yeah. of my twenties. I would say um, my late twenties at least. I would just pick up with, you know, an 80 pound suitcase and check it to the next location, Airbnb, and just start over. It took me a long time to realize that what I was actually running from was a disciplined path. I kept playing this game in my head that like the answers to all of the resistance that I'm in inside lie around the corner of the next, the next vacation is going to solve this shit, the next location. And I used to be such a perfectionist about making sure I had the right spot and the right city. Um, but these days I just see that that's more, that was the excuse I used not to be on a disciplined path. Yeah. There was so, some, something other I was going to say about this, but go ahead with your. Well, so here's like my first. take on it because I've never been a huge fan of travel and granted most of the travel that I did in my youth was for baseball. So I was just going from shitty motel to shitty motel, middle of nowhere, Michigan and like the upper peninsula just freezing my dick off. Right wasn't all that much fun, but looking back on it, I have really positive memories of that. And I did enjoy it because there was the camaraderie of doing it through the team. And like, you know, we were in the struggle together and we were going through like this whole path together. What, what I, what I have, or what I take issue with when people say this whole, like live a little, right? So like, go see the world. Like you have wealth now travel around, experience other cultures. It's like, that's not how this works. You don't get to go to Shanghai for four days and suddenly experience the culture. You can't even do that state to state. That's true. It's like, I've been to New York City twice for a even week. If, and even if you could, even if you could experience Shanghai in four days, it's not a good perspective. It's a very one-dimensional perspective of what living a little is. I'm not saying I have this figured out by any means, but I have, a very, I have an even simpler response to that person. What's their question? Why don't you live a little? Why yeah. don't you go have some junk food? This is the common clap back to a disciplined life right is why aren't you embracing failure more like the rest of us and not in a healthy way of like we all fail but like why aren't you looking to fail why aren't you looking to eat poorly and just chalk it up to being human but i think that person has if somebody says something like that they have a point if you haven't genuinely experimented with the other side of it the difference is i did go through a lot of shit that wasn't healthy for me when i was on that you know, let's just drink a little. Let's yeah, just yeah. let's just fuck off a little. Yeah. Whatever that was for you. Like my path was more drugs and 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 that type of shit. But I think it's sort of all the same when you distill it down. You go through a process of being unhealthy enough in your patterns to realize that it's causing you more harm than good. And then something sort of just clicks where you start to make more mature choices if you have enough awareness around it. That's the process. My whole thing is like, you know, I've been to New York City twice. Love it. It's, it's an amazing place so far to have visited. I don't understand anything about it though. Nothing outside of like having had contact with people who are from New York and like having a general idea of what the culture is like. I can't say that I've experienced it. It's also like, 
I get what you're saying because the travel thing is sort of a disguise. It's just so bullshitty, man. It's like you go rent an Airbnb, a new place, and you stay for four or five days and you check out a couple local cuisines and maybe you go out to a bar and meet a few local people. You didn't experience that culture. The thing about the travel is on the surface, it seems like it's way different than like go have a drink. Right. Go eat some bad food. Because that's clearly It appears to be them telling you go do something healthy that's going to culture you in a way that all humans should experience life. Right. Or the also lens. that like you have these means available to you and I don't. And if I did, I would go do all these things. Yeah. So let's give a different frame of travel f- from another dimension. The dimension of the person who now values discipline and sees that most people who go on vacation are in a complete state of self-avoidance and actually just looking to take that next picture yeah. in a complete trance just so that they can say that they have a fucking picture of the Empire State Building. Right. Like, I hate like, that shit sightseeing. Is, more oh. than anything else on earth, man. You know I hate small talk even. Right. But, <laughs> right in line. Like, but like small talk and sightseeing or like just just neck and neck for like the nut low. I'd rather hang out in a, in a closet with a drunk person. Don't get me wrong. I, I really like seeing beautiful things and I don't care if somebody wants to take a picture. But it's very clear to me when someone is operating from a lens, no pun intended, that just wants the picture right. because they need the picture right. for whoever the fuck doesn't care about when them I, yet. When I say I low. hate sightseeing, I mean I hate the fact that when you go to place X, it's because of thing Y. And somehow that's supposed to be what sums up your trip. Like, I've been to the Grand Canyon. I was underwhelmed. Not because the Grand Canyon itself <laughs> is underwhelming, right? But because, like, I'm in the middle of the fucking desert staring at a canyon. If what you're doing to live a little is actually causing negative side effects when you weigh it against your goals and your core values then living a little has now turned into an avoidance act that you justify because you don't have the discipline to do what you really really want to do right which is perform at your potential that's what i have a problem with and the fucked up thing about being um more in tune to this stuff like i it's it's very bizarre i feel very misunderstood by the world and I also feel in a sense alienated when I look out at what people are doing on the day-to-day just in terms of how much of a trance everyone looks like they're into me yeah. like when you start dealing with mindset stuff the deep deep implications of mindset and how ridiculous the roots of our projections are and the distorted ways that we operate and manipulate people and all this other shit the world starts to look very different. And I'm not trying to say that you'll be jaded. I think I've been borderline jaded at times by this. Sure. But what I'm, the point I'm trying to get across is that if you truly saw the motivations that were running the lives of the people that are telling you to live a little, you would stop listening to people immediately. Of course, of course. They're dead-eyed, right? They're so caught in the rat race that quantifying living a little is just taking that small amount of time that's left over and investing investing it in something that makes you forget about how you're investing the bulk of your time. Or even worse, investing it in criticizing the way that you're running your shit. Right. Like that's the worst of the worst. Yeah. Like my idea of living little, and this is what this is what's really frustrating because I'll get I'll be damned for this, right? Like it's just you want to start seeing the pushback come through. This is gonna be it. My idea of living <laughs> a little take on risk. You want to experience life? Fucking risk beyond your comprehension of risk. And I'm not just talking financially. 
I'm talking about physically. I'm talking about mentally, socially. Do things that make you uncomfortable every single second that you get the opportunity to, right? It's like somebody's going to look back at me fucking homeless at 45 because I have my entire net worth tied up in a house, crypto, poker, and a business. And they're going to say, you fucked up, man. You should have been curbing your risk. You had it all. You could have had a good life. And I'm going to say, I don't want that life. I'd rather be homeless at 45, right? I would rather be in a situation where I know that I left it all on the table. Does this mean you're going to go bungee jumping with us next no, time? No, no. Because you passed that, on that one, Sean. That is a healthy fear. Why? Because it's percent <laughs> more risk than getting in your car tonight? Nope. Just because <laughs> I can get in a car accident and walk away. I cannot get in a bungee accident and walk away. I'm dead. That does not quantify the risk of it. Sure it does. Heights is a very healthy fear. You as a human being should absolutely unequivocally be afraid of heights. And if you're not, you're probably a sociopath. I'm afraid of heights. I also have trust in the bungee equipment to a certain extent, assuming we're not bungee jumping in Mexico. Makes one of us. Which isn't racist. It's an observation of the safety precautions in that territory. I don't think it's, it's racist. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's uh, an economical thing. <laughs> oh, man. That's we're going to get ruined for this one. We're going to come off as a couple of angry birds that think they know way more than people who are trying to give us advice on how to be happier. And the thing is, I that, don't think I know shit. I just think that I understand what's allowed me to get to this point. I believe my perspective on this is more inclusive. So if you want to call me arrogant, call me arrogant for that. That I see the pain that gets caused on the other side of live a little. Yeah. And a lot of people don't see that pain because they're not in charge of other people's lives. I or see what or happens. Or they're just blind to it. I see every day what happens when my student goes through a performance flip and decides to move or shift gears in some way that I could have called from a mile away as just a cycle playing itself out. Yeah. You see this shit too. We talk about it. Yeah. The, the thing that I've done that I've had to do is just make boundaries with myself. Like I can't go to bed that late anymore and I probably can't meet you at the club more than once a month. And sure. I probably can't even go out with you on Friday unless we plan it three weeks in advance. All these things kind of suck from the yeah. perspective of live a little. But in the macro, I think they make life a little bit more stable. And I think maybe to wrap this, the most important thing that the discipline mind, the mindset that values discipline, the biggest difference might be that we understand the value of stability and the things that disrupt stability. Yeah. If you are going to make concessions on stability, I can guarantee you that's going to result in performance deficiency. And to me, that's the same thing as unhappiness. Because as soon as my shit falls off and I'm scrambling to get it back together, I'm anxious, I'm probably projecting on people, and I'm probably becoming overly self-critical. And none of those things are fun. In that vein, in very simple terms, this isn't a deep question, but like in, in very simplistic terms, what's your, what's your greatest fear? Death. Uh, death or dying they're different yeah and i don't and this is how irrational the fear is i think uh most most if not all of my anxiety come stems from existential which i think is a different vein than a lot of anxiety stems from um i don't tend to relate to many people about how often i think about death not suicidal never been but i think about death a lot and the implications of it and what's on the other side and what it would be like to be diagnosed and get a death sentence. 
and how ridiculous it is to know that we're all going to die anyway and that we convince ourselves that we're not until it becomes real. Like all these things plague me, which is why I've gravitated much more towards a a practice of self-acceptance. But if you're going to ask me my biggest fear about death, (laughs) the inevitability of merging with something that is totally unfathomable and unknown and that obliterates my entire sense of identity. And I've used that to leverage a lot of the performance upgrades that I've been able to do on the mindset side because, funny enough, on the relative plane of the human existence, I think we're all afraid of that anyway. We're afraid of our identity being restructured in some way. This is why the pool defaults risk-averse. This is why, just by studying poker, we should be able to destroy any market with the simple psychological observation that humans are risk-averse. That's interesting to me. Yeah. And I think it stems from a lot of deep shit that most people don't investigate or care about. But um, it's ironic to me that my deepest fears that many of still are unresolved continue to leverage my biggest discoveries on the relative plane. I think that that's a perfectly rational corollary and it, it goes hand in hand with mine. My biggest fear is not death, but... To the, to the reasoning behind my biggest fear, it's absolutely identical to yours. I don't ever want a reconstruction of self. And my greatest fear is a deterioration of my mental cognition. To the point where you just have no reference point for your identity. Maybe slightly outside of that, right? I, I, I'm not afraid of becoming a vegetable because I assume that I won't be conscious enough to know, right? I'm afraid of reaching insanity, or, or the, the precipice. Yeah, I would say that's one of my biggest fears too. Go, like one of the questions I used to ask myself is, what are you more afraid of? Going legit insane or dying? Because I was trying to get to the bottom of the question. I feel like it's not even question. close. So you'd rather, go, you'd rather die than For end sure. up insane. For sure. Not even remotely close. I can't imagine the torture and pain that a person with mental illness, like deep-rooted mental illness, goes through on the day-to-day. Especially in a society where like we don't exactly have this whole process figured out in a healthy way like we're very quick to shun we're very quick to turn a blind eye and we're very quick to kind of spotlight these people as the problem not necessarily somebody who desperately needs help and like i don't want to ever feel that helpless like the big thing i've built my life out off of is the fact that i can hold my own carry my weight and always stand on my own two feet it's like the second that's stripped away from you i don't know what my identity would be and not because like i feel like i've built myself up into being this like grand intellectual person or anything like that. But it's like, it's been the thing that's gotten me out of the most jams. Mm-hmm. It's been the one thing I could re- rely on where when everything hits the fan, I could just kind of like take a deep breath and say, it's going to be all right. You're it's, been the thing that al- it's been the thing that allows you to remain in control. Yeah, true. But that's interesting. That you don't see death as a loss of control. You must see it as something. I just different. see it as finite. Interesting. Bungeeing is pretty safe, though, dude. Like, it's 2019, and I'm pretty sure... I don't think anyone wants to see me shoot my pants, Nick. So it's about the fact that you're going to shit yourself, not that you're actually afraid of dying. No, no. Don't want to die. Confident I'll shit myself. <laughs>